Part six of Descriptive Analyses of Piano Works by Edward Baxter Perry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chopin three. Waltz A flat, opus forty two. Every dance, the waltz included, is based upon and adapted to some particular dance movement. All its effects, whether of melody, harmony, rhythm, or embellishment, are carefully calculated by the composer to meet the requirements of this special movement, to conform to and express its general character, and be governed by its usual rate of speed. Each of these dance movements embodies in itself some peculiar quality or characteristic, such as stately grace in the minuet, martial pomp in the polonaise, impetuous vivacity in the gallop, which the music must indicate and supplement. The Chopin waltzes are no exception to this rule. They are distinctly and preeminently waltzes, and though of course not for actual dance purposes, they are intended as idealized tone pictures of the waltz and of ballroom scenes and experiences. The one in question, opus 42 in A-flat, is planned upon a broader scale, contains more variety, and taxes more thoroughly the resources of the accomplished pianist than any other work of Chopin in this vein. Its tender floating melodies, bright, delicate passage work, and swinging, swaying rhythms are replete with all that eloquent gliding grace, that arch coquetry, that passionate warmth of mood which we so invariably associate with the festive scenes. Where youth and pleasure meet, to chase the glowing hours with flying feet. Light sparkle, delicate draperies are afloat, like perfumed clouds upon the languid air, Bright eyes scintillate with mirth, or soften with emotion, and all goes merry as a marriage bell. And yet throughout all there runs a half-hidden undertone that tells of deeper, sterner thought and far intenser feeling, that tells of dark forebodings, of distant alarms, of sudden trumpet calls, so that the work in its entirety cannot but seem to us the counterpart in music of that familiar, almost hackneyed, but immortal word picture of Byron, describing the great ball on the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, to whose thunderous music the fate of nations was reversed, like the steps of the dancers in a ballroom, and France changed monarchs as a lady shifts her partners. A sombre trio strain about the middle of the composition suggests to us Brunswick's fated chieftain, who sat apart and watched the dancers and listened to the revelry with death's prophetic ear. Later, where the rhythmic pulsation of the waltz is abruptly and violently interrupted in the midst of its flowing cadences by a strong emphasized G natural F, repeated twice by both hands in unison, you are forcibly reminded of the line, But hush, hark, a deep sound strikes like a rising knell. After a moment of consternation and suspense, the waltz movement proceeds, appearing almost flippant by contrast, and seeming to say, like the verse which follows, On with a dance, let joy be unconfined. Lastly, the breathless, impetuous finale indicates the hurrying to and fro, the mounting in hot haste, and marshalling in arms with which the dance broke up at midnight, as cavaliers rush from the ballroom to the battlefield. Both Chopin, the greatest musician of Poland, and Mitrovich, her greatest poet, were powerfully impressed by the personality and poetry of Lord Byron and there is no doubt that our composer had the stanzas of the contemporaneous English writer in mind 
in the creation of this work. The first duty of the performer in rendering this composition should be to suggest irresistibly to the listeners both the mood and movement of the waltz, and to force them to feel, as far as may be, the elastic swing of the rhythm and the warm, voluptuous mood of the music. The tone quality employed should constantly change to suit the contrasting colors of the different strains, now warmly lyric, now sparkling and vibrant, at times deeply somber, and again strikingly dramatic and acclamatory. As to temper, I would caution the player against an extreme rate of speed. Remember that the usual waltz step is, approximately at least, our guide in choosing the proper movement. I am aware that many pianists of the greatest skill and reputation are guilty of the cardinal error of playing one of these beautiful poetic little compositions of Chopin's at prestissimo tempo so as to display their phenomenal finger dexterity at the expense of all musical and artistic truth. So fast indeed that even if the notes were all struck with accuracy, which is by no means always the case, its graceful rhythmic swing and all its melodic and harmonic effects are utterly lost leaving nothing but an incoherent, formless, purposeless whirlwind of tone, as dry and unlovely as the eddies of dust in a September gale, suggesting neither the mood nor movement of a waltz. Chopin's Nocturnes In derivation and general significance, the term nocturne coincides with our English word nocturnal. It is music appertaining to the night, a night piece, suited to and expressing its usually quiet, dreamful, pensive mood, and frequently portraying some nocturnal scene or episode. The name nocturne was originally used as synonymous with that of serenade, and they were virtually identical in character. But in later times it has come to have a much broader application, and today, though every serenade is of course a nocturne, all nocturnes are by no means serenades. Serenade is a real or imaginary song of love, and presupposes a fair listener at a lattice window and a lover singing beneath the stars, to the accompaniment of a harp, mandolin, or guitar. The nocturne may legitimately embody any phase of human emotion or experience, or any aspect of inanimate nature, which can rationally be conceived of as appropriately emanating from, or environed by, nocturnal conditions. It must not be supposed that this vein of composition was Chopin's only or even his most important field of activity. To judge him exclusively by his nocturnes and waltzes is precisely like judging Shakespeare solely by his sonnets. But it was a vein in which, owing to his peculiarly poetic temperament and fertile imagination, he far excelled all other writers, no less in the quality than in the number and variety of his creations. Nocturne in E-flat Opus 9, number 2. This, perhaps, is the easiest, and certainly the best known, of Chopin's nocturnes. Scarcely a student but has played it at one time or another. In fact, it has been worn well nigh to shreds, yet still retains its simple, tender charm, if approached in the proper spirit. It is replete with melodic beauty and warm harmonic colouring. It is an excellent study in tone production and shading, as well as a model of symmetrical form. It is one of his early works, and the glow of first youth still lingers about it, 
in spite of its overfamiliarity and much abuse. As a teaching piece, it sometimes surprises the weary teacher with a waft of unexpected freshness, like the fleeting odor from an old and much-used schoolbook in which violets have been pressed. It is a pure lyric, a love song without words, but to which a dreamily tender poetic text can easily be imagined and supplied, and the very evident suggestion of the harp or guitar in its accompanying chords facilitates the effort and brightens the poetic effect. So far as I can learn, it has no definite local background, either in fact or tradition, no special place or persons to which it refers. It is an abstract idea, treated subjectively, the embodied emotional reflex of imaginary conditions. The scene is a garden, any garden, so it be beautiful, rich with the vivid luxuriance of the south, fragrant with the breath of sleeping flowers, with the south summer night hanging fondly over it, and the summer stars glittering above. The melody is the song of the ideal troubadour, pouring out his heart to the night, and his listening lady, while the accompanying chords are lightly swept, vibrant strings by the practised fingers of the minstrel. The cadenza of the close is intended as a mere delicate ripple of liquid brilliancy, as if the moon, suddenly breaking through a veil over evening mist, had flooded the scene with a rain of silvery radiance. Nocturne, Opus 27, Number 2 This nocturne, though one of Chopin's most intrinsically beautiful compositions for the piano, is even more frequently heard upon the violin. It has been for decades a favourite lyric number with all the leading violinists of the world, and adapts itself admirably to the resources and peculiar character of this instrument. For this there is an excellent reason, far other than mere chance. On a certain evening in the early thirties were assembled in an elegant Parisian salon a company of the musical and literary elite of the French capital to meet several foreign celebrities and enjoy one of those rare opportunities for intellectual and artistic converse and companionship, of which we read with envious longing, but which are practically unknown in our busy prosaic age. There were present Chopin, Liszt, Mendelssohn, the latter then in Paris on a brief visit, besides many local musicians of note, including some of the professors of the conservatoire, also Georges Sand, Heinrich Heine, Alfred de Musset, with some lesser literary lights, and a brilliant gathering of social leaders. It was an evening long to be remembered for the sparkling wit and repartee flashed back and forth from these brilliant intellects, like the rays of light and the glittering jewels of the ladies, for the occasional bursts of glowing eloquence and poetic thought from the profounder minds, and especially for the music, which was plentiful and of the best. It may have been on this very occasion that Rossini made his famous but most unfriendly hit at the expense of Liszt's marvellous powers of improvisation, which he, Rossini, was inclined seemingly to doubt. Liszt was being pressed to play and to improvise, and Rossini called out across the room, Yes, my friend, do improvise that beautiful thing that you improvised at Madame's last Friday, and at Lord's so-and-so's the week before. In the course of the evening, a local violinist of prominence played for the company a new composition of his own, a sweet, long-sustained cantilena, with a more involved second movement in double-stopping. When he had finished, and the applause had subsided, one of the ladies was heard to remark, what a pity that the piano is incapable of these effects. It is brilliant, 
dramatic, resourceful, what you will, but only the violin can stir the heart in that way. Chopin rose, bowing with one of his equivocal smiles, half sad, half playfully mocking, stepped to the piano and improvised this nocturne, a perfect reproduction of all the best violin effects, cantilena and all, including the double stopping in the second theme, with a certain warmth and poetry added, which were all his own. Of course, it was afterward finished and perfected in detail, but in substance it was the same as the D-flat nocturne, which we all know so well, and which the violinists, though most of them unconscious of the reason, have singled out as specially adapted to their instrument. The player should keep the violin and its effects in mind in rendering it, the lingering songful string quality of tone in the melody, the smooth legato, the leisurely well-rounded embellishments, and the tempo should never be hurried. It may be well to say, in this connection, that in these Chopin nocturnes, and in all other lyric compositions, the embellishments, grace notes, and the like, should be made to conform to the general mood and character of the rest of the music. Symmetry and fitting proportions are among the primal laws of all art. In a Liszt rhapsody, a cadenza should flash like a rocket. But in a Chopin nocturne, it should glide with easy, undulating grace, should float like a wind-blown ribbon, a fallen rose-leaf. Too often we hear the ornamental passages in a lyric played as if they were wholly irrelevant matter, dropped in there by accident out of some other entirely different compositions, a bit of vain, noisy display in the midst of a poetic dream, breaking instead of enhancing its charm, utterly incongruous. Harmonize the embellishments with the subject, fit the trimming to the fabric, Nocturne, Opus 32, Number 1 Although technically easy and thoroughly musical, this little work is strangely enough but little played. It is technically no harder than the Opus 9 referred to, though it requires more intensity and stronger contrasts in its treatment. It is singular that a comparatively simple composition of such intrinsic merit by one of the great composers, comprising, as it does, so many attractive elements in such small compass should be so little used. Possibly to those not acquainted with its subject, the closing chords with their sharp, almost painful contrast and utter dissimilarity to the preceding movement have seemed incongruous and unintelligible. But when the theme and purpose of the whole are understood, it is seen in what a masterly manner and with what simple material Chopin has produced the most striking dramatic results. The subject of this nocturne is the same as that of Robert Browning's later poem, In a Gondola, an episode to be found in the annals of Venice, when, at the height of her pride and power, she was nominally a republic, but from the large legislative body elected exclusively from among the nobility, an inner higher circle of forty was chosen, and they, in turn, selected from their number, by secret ballot, the mysterious, potent, Council of Ten, gruesomely famous in history, who wielded the real power of the state, often for the darkest personal ends, the doge being little more than a figurehead. Highest and most dreaded of all was the Council of Three, chosen from their own number, by the Ten, by an ingenious system of secret ballot, so perfect that only those selected knew on whom the choice had fallen, and they did not know each other's identity. 
he met at night, in a secret chamber in which three tables and three chairs and even the blocks of marble in the pavement of the floor were symbolically triangular. They entered at a fixed hour by three separate doors, disguised in black masks and long black cloaks, conferred in whispers only, and their decrees, like those of the Greek fates, were inexorable and inevitable. Failed and shielded by mystery, they worked their awful will, from which there was no escape, no appeal. The story runs at once a beautiful and high-spirited heiress, the daughter of a former doge and the special ward of the Council of Three, as the disposal of her hand and fortune was an important state matter, had the courage to brave their prohibition, and secretly to welcome the suit, and turn the love of a young gallant but fortunate knight, who risked his life to obtain their brief stolen interviews, or to breathe his love in subdued but heart-stirring melody beneath her window. One night, when a great ball at the palace seemed to afford an opportunity for her to escape unnoticed, he came disguised as a gondolier, and for a few sweet moments they were alone together upon the moonlit water. The first theme of this nocturne suggests the scene in the gondola, with its softly swaying motion, as it feels the faint swell of the great sea's distant heart-throb, while the melodic phrases embody the tender mood of the lovers as if in a sweet, low song. Browning expresses the mood in his opening lines. I send my heart up to thee, all my heart, in this my singing, for the stars help me, and the sea bears part, the very night is clinging, closer to Venice's streets to leave one space, above me whence thy face may light my joyous heart to thee, its dwelling place. The second theme is somewhat more intense, though still subdued. It tells of greater passion, and also of deeper sadness, with an occasional passing thrill of suppressed terror. Browning sings it. O which were best to roam or rest, the land's lap or the water's breast, to sleep on yellow millet sheaves, or swim in lucid shadows, just eluding water lily leaves, an inch from death's black fingers thrust to lock you whom release he must, which life were best on summer eves. To which the lady answers, Dip your arm over the boatside, elbow deep, as I do, thus were death so unlike sleep. Caught this way, death's to fear for flame or steel, for poison, doubtless, but for water, feel. The last measures of the lyric melody, full of lingering sweetness, are like the parting kiss. And suddenly, brutally, with the G major chord against the crashing Fs in the bass, the voice of fate breaks the tender spell. Death enters with swift, heart-crushing tread, and his icy hand snatches his victim from the very arms of love. And the closing chords, brief but impressive, voice the shock, the cry of anguish, and the swift sinking into black despair which were the lady's more bitter share in the tragedy. For too soon the time had passed. Her brief happiness had been saddened and softened to deeper, graver tenderness by the knowledge of impending danger, by the ever-recurrent cloud, like the passing thought of browning voices in the line, What if the tree should catch at last thy serenader? They must return or be detected. 
Reluctantly he guides the boat back to the landing, and just in the moment of their farewell he is surprised, overpowered, and stabbed to death by waiting assassins, dying in her arms. The closing of the nocturne as just described is, to my thinking, more dramatic, more realistic, and far stronger than the last lines of Browning's poem. It was ordained to be so sweet and best, Come as now beneath thine eyes upon thy breast. Still kiss me, care not for the cowards, Care only to put aside thy beauteous hair, My blood will hurt. The three I do not scorn to death, Because they never lived, but I have lived indeed, And so yet one more kiss can die. Nocturne, Opus 37, Number 1 Opus 37, number 1 in G minor, was written during Chopin's winter sojourn on the island of Majorca, already described. On this occasion, also, the composer had been left alone to occupy himself with his piano, while his more active friends went for a sail on the bay. The sun had disappeared behind a western bank of cloud. The evening shadows were fast closing around him, filling with gloom and mystery the distant recesses of the vast irregular apartment where he sat, and the columned cloister beyond which led from the ruined refectory of the monastery to the chapel where the priests and abbots of ten centuries lay entombed. The ruins of a dead past were on every side. The silent presence of death seemed all about him. He felt that, like the day, his life was swiftly declining, and the mood of the place and the hour was strong upon him. It found utterance in the sorrowfully beautiful, passionately pathetic first melody of this nocturne, with its falling minor phrases like the cry of a deep but suppressed despair, and its sombre, sobbing accompaniment, like the muffled moan of the surf on the adjacent beach. A precisely similar mood is powerfully expressed in Tennyson's poem, Break, 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 especially in the closing lines. But the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. Suddenly, in the midst of his melancholy reveries, Chopin was seized by one of those deceptive visions so frequent at that time. The shadowy forms of a procession of dead monks seemed to emerge from beneath the obscure arches of the refectory in a slow funeral march along the cloister behind him to the chapel, where their evening services were formerly held, solemnly chanting as they passed their Santo Dio. This impressive chant, as if sung, by a chorus of subdued male voices is realistically reproduced in the middle movement of the nocturne. The very words Santo Dio are distinctly suggested by each little phrase of four consecutive chords. When the monks have vanished and their voices have died away in the distance beneath the echoing vault of the chapel, Chopin recovers himself with a shudder and resumes his sad dreaming, symbolized by return of the first melody. Just at its close, the sun sinks below the western bank. Its last rays gleam for a moment on the white sail of the boat just rounding up to the landing. His friends return. His lonely brooding is cheerfully interrupted. His mood brightens, and the nocturne ends with an exquisite transition to the major key. The player should strive in this work for a sombre intensity of tone and should render each phrase of the melody as if the pain expressed were his own, making the undertone of the sobbing sea distinctly apparent in the accompanying chords. In the middle movement, where the monk's chant is introduced, the imitation of a muffled chorus of male voices should be made deceptively realistic. All the notes of each chord must be pressed 
was struck with a firm but elastic touch, and exactly simultaneously, and each little quadruplet of chords must rise and fall in power, so accented as to enunciate the words Santo Dio. This is at once the saddest, the deepest, and the most descriptive, while technically the easiest, of all the Chopin nocturnes. Nocturne, Opus 37, Number 2 Graceful, tender, and cheerful is a general tone of the nocturne in G major. It was written the following summer after Chopin's return to France during a visit of some weeks at Nohant, beautiful country seat of Georges Sand, where in the midst of a smiling rural landscape, bright and winning rather than awe-inspiring, breathing the mild but invigorating air of his beloved France, surrounded by cheerful and congenial companions, and by every possible physical comfort, our composer's health and spirits temporarily revived. To this epoch, brief as it was, we owe some of his most genial and attractive compositions. Again it is evening and Chopin is alone, but this time it is in his own familiar cosy room, where the perfect appointments and tasteful arrangement tell of loving feminine hands, glad to minister to every fancy of his delicately fastidious nature. The scent of flowers floats in through the open window, and mingled with it the low voices of friends in the garden below. He watches the play of lights and shadows among the swaying branches of a tall, graceful willow tree just outside his casement, the vaguely outlined, fleecy, floating grey clouds, ghosts of dead storms silently passing on into the infinite unknown spaces of the sky. He listens to the night winds sighing among the treetops, to the good nights of sleepy birds, to the vesper bell of a distant village, and embodies his dreamy impressions in the first movement of this nocturne, with its wavering, undulating, murmurous effects, and its faint, intermittent, melodic suggestions, like the half-remembered music of a dream. The second movement, twice alternating with the first, though in different keys, is distinctly a slumber song in rhythm and mood, a restful, gentle, soothing lullaby to the composer's own weary heart, to his momentarily slumbering griefs, forebodings, peaceful, tender, pensively sad at times, but entirely free from that ultra-bitterness and gloom which colour most of his later works. His Polish biographer calls this the most beautiful melody Chopin ever wrote, and it reminds us strongly of Tennyson's lines in the same mood. There is sweet music here that softer falls than petals from blown roses on the grass, or night dews on still waters between walls of shadowy granite in a gleaming pass, music that gentler on the spirit lies than tired eyelids upon tired eyes. An extremely light but fluent legato touch, and an ethereal delicacy and grace of conception are demanded for the first movement, and the ever-present curve of beauty should be indicated in each little passage of three measures. Let the player imagine a brightly tinted feather ball, tossed lightly into the air, and fluttering softly and slowly to earth again. For the second movement, a singing lyric tone, a subdued warmth of colour, and a steady, reposeful, rocking rhythm are a necessity, and the lullaby mood should be kept in mind. End of part five.